Okay, everyone. Good morning. You people look like someone stole an hour of your sleep. A little grumpy, a little groggy. Hey, listen, let's all covenant together that we'll show people grace who show up 40 minutes from now, right? They're like, what? What, what happened? Well, uh, if you were not with us last week, we are now in part two of a series called The Line. And just to frame it up, just to catch you up, sometimes people treat Christianity. This is not something that is, that is conscious. It's typically something that is subconscious. But they treat Christianity by reducing it to what you believe. Believe a certain collection of things, and then they don't do a number of things. So it's about believing the right things and then refraining or abstaining from, uh, uh, from a collection of activities, collection of, of sins or, or, or certainly things in the Christian community that we, we frown upon a, a little bit. The, the tragic thing about that is that when we reduce the message of Jesus to what you believe and what you don't do, it creates a movement that is largely uh, inaction. And Jesus never came along and said, now listen, gather around We shall be a community of people who will be known by what we don't do. I want to release you in the world, and we're all going to not do some things. It's not particularly compelling, is it? So what we're going to be talking about and continuing to talk about in this series is less about what you don't do and more about the church being the church and being known by what we do. And what that looks like is acts of justice and mercy and compassion and acts of love and generosity. The kind of things that when people outside the community of faith see people voluntarily giving of their time or their resources or their energy, it makes them go, why would they do that? This Living above the line is all about not what you don't do, but what you do. The anchor verse that we've been spending time in is from Micah 6, verse 8, and we're kind of making our way through this over three weeks. It says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Last week, We looked at what it means to act justly, to live a life of justice. Justice is about making wrongs right. And we even looked at that uh, quote by Gary Hogan where it says, God has a plan to help bring justice to the world, and his plan is us, the church. So this week we're going to turn our attention to the second phrase that is in this. And the phrase is to love mercy. What does God require of us to love mercy? Not to offer mercy reluctantly or through obligation, but to love mercy. Now, Christians are known for a lot of things, right? I mean, think about what Christians are actually known for. There are 350,000 churches in the United States, and every day, uh, people outside of the community of faith are driving by churches. They're driving by the church buildings And they're gaining an impression from the people or from the buildings, um, and they're they're learning a little bit about them. When I first moved to America, I was really intrigued by what you guys do with churches, uh, particularly the churches that that have a sign out the front, and then there is a space on the sign to put a very clever message, right? And then someone in the congregation is designated as probably the person who's really clever with words and someone who's really good at that, and they come up with a phrase, and then every week, sign guy goes out, and it's his sign guy ministry, and then he goes and he changes the phrase, and uh, it it basically causes everyone who drives by to roll their eyes, you know? God answers knee mail and all of that kind of stuff, right? The, The best of the best. I was just thinking about, if you were... Uh, outside of the church, and you're driving by churches, what is the impression that you would have of, of Christians, of church people? So think about that when I show you a couple. Have a look at this. Honk if you love Jesus, text if you want to meet him. Okay, okay. Here's another one. 
Facebook, God has sent you a friend request. You know that like one guy in a church one day was going, I've got it. Instead of Facebook, let's change it to Facebook, and then everyone is going to be like, see that and go, they're so clever, let's go to that church. All right, let's see, look at another one. Don't let worry kill you, let the church help. (laughs) Oh, how true that is, right? All right, here's another one. Do you know what hell is? Come hear our preacher. Listen, it's tough being a preacher, okay? This is, this is hard work. All right, let me show you another one. Jesus would smack you in the head. When you're driving down the road, you're feeling a little discouraged, and you're like, God, are you there? And you look up and you see Jesus would smack you in the head. So edifying. All right, here's another one. No clothing this Wednesday. That may actually work. I don't know. That, that may work. Apparently, they're collecting clothes, but not this Wednesday. All right, here's the last one. This is my favorite. Whoever stole our mower, God will get you. <laughs> yes, he will. Christians are known for many things, and people have an impression of Christians. They have an impression of the church But what does God require of us? That we would love mercy. That we would be a community of people that are known for loving mercy. The most common definition of mercy is undeserved favor or unwarranted compassion. My favorite definition, mercy is love in action. It is acting on our love. Now, we're going to look at a story today that all of you would be familiar with, all of you would have heard something about this, even if you've not been around church very much at all. This is in Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me there. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. You would know a little bit about this. This is a simple story. It's a masterpiece with all kinds of hidden wisdom and hidden insight. And I'm hoping to uncover a little bit of that hidden wisdom. Maybe you have, have, have heard this this parable many times before. Maybe I can teach you some stuff that you have not heard about it around the original context. Now, Luke 10, uh, starting with verse 25. Here we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the phrase here, an expert in the law, is a very specific phrase that was uh, assigned to one who had devoted their entire life to studying the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And, and studying is an understatement. They would have memorized every single word. They have devoted their entire life to understanding the Torah. Um, each, each word phrase, each section, the, the, the meaning, the imagery, they would be so proficient. It's like, Imagine someone who has a PhD or two PhDs in the Torah. This is what an expert in the law would be. So they're standing up, and it says in the text, to test Jesus. So a guy who's an expert, a PhD, looks over at Jesus and asks him a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Jesus responds with a question, with a question. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So this expert in the law said, essentially, love God and love other people. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Jesus responds in verse 28, you have answered correctly, my young Jedi. Do this and you will live. Did you see what just happened there? An expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. Instead of answering his question, Jesus, boom, sends a question back to him. He answers the question and Jesus goes, correct, you may sit down. So this guy's going, "Um, hey, wait, one more thing. He's he's embarrassed and we know that because in verse 29 it says, but he wanted to justify himself. Like he's a little embarrassed in front of his mates. 
And he's like, hang on, hang on, hang on, I've got another one, I've got another one. And then he says, and who is my neighbor? Now this was a smoking hot question. In the first century, this was a big debate that was going on. There, was, there were several cultural debates that were permeating the society in the first century. And this was one of them. Who is one's neighbor? What is our area of responsibility? And particularly in the Jewish community, they would argue, they would debate, they would discuss. So who really is our neighbor? There were many in the Jewish community that believed that a neighbor is, is really only another Jew, someone who looked like them, think like them, acted like them, someone who had the same convictions. They can be our neighbors, but anyone outside of that, they're, they're not our neighbors, they're not our responsibility, certainly not tax collectors or prostitutes or immoral people. So this expert in the law says, who is my neighbor? Who are we responsible to care for? Now, keep that question loaded into your mind. Who is my neighbor? Because the entire story of the Good Samaritan is in response to that question. That's sort of the framework to the question. Jesus then says this. A man was going down from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell in the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus gave a very specific scene to tell this parable. This story was set up on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this was a 17-mile stretch of road. It was full of hills and turns and twists. There was actually even a stretch in that 17 miles that was known as the Pass of Blood. And the reason it was called that was that it was particularly restricted from view, and it was just an absolute ideal place to be jumped. It was an ideal place uh, you know, to be, to be pulled away by a collection of robbers and, uh, and they beat you up and they either kill you or they, you know, kind of leave you in a, in a pretty sorry state. So that when Jesus was saying this, when he's setting up the scene, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. These guys are going, yeah, we know that road and we know where this happened. We, we, we can visualize it. His, the, the, the audience was understanding what was going on here. Now, ethnic and racial prejudice was typical within the social order of the first century. So the first thing that the people were waiting to hear in this story is what was the race and what was the religion of the victim? They're all waiting to hear that. Now, the two ways to perceive one's uh, ethnicity, one's race or one's religion in, in the first century was by recognizing their clothes and their accent. That was the two ways to understand their, their race. So it's, it's a little bit like me. When, when, when someone hears the way that I talk, they immediately know where I'm from, and they know all about my culture because they learned it at Outback. So, um, Outback fake house, honestly. Do you eat blooming onions? Yeah, it's all we eat. It's all, you know, like... So Jesus is telling a story, and, and everyone is waiting to hear the guy that is down, the guy that is injured, what group does he belong to? They're basically waiting because they, they want to know if they care or not. They're wanting to know, does he belong to us? Like, he's in our gang, is he in our, our community, or is he in someone else's community? Where, where does he belong? And Jesus which is so brilliant how he uses his language. He gives two descriptions. He says that he was stripped and he was, led half, he was left half dead. So he's obviously, he's not speaking and he doesn't have clothes. There is no way to distinguish what group of people this guy belonged to. What an amazing way right at the top of this story to just level the playing field and go, look at this. This was a human being. And Jesus cuts through the, the racial discrimination of the day and he shows the value of a human life, a human being. When my first daughter, Sydney, was born, you know, I'd just become a dad and uh, like my, my heart was so tender that actually hasn't gone away yet, but it was particularly tender when my daughter was first born. About three months after she was born, I went to South Africa. 
And I worked uh, in an orphanage with babies who'd been abandoned by their family who were uh, HIV positive and had fetal alcohol syndrome. And there was this, you know how like in life you have a collection of things that just happen and every now and then you feel like you have this definitive moment, like a moment in time where everything just seems to get clear. I had this moment where I'm at this orphanage and someone hands me this little baby. And it was just like the, the contrast of, of holding my little girl for the first time only a few weeks earlier and then now I'm holding this precious little baby boy who was HIV positive. And he's looking up at me with these big brown eyes and I'm looking at him and I'm just, I am just so profoundly struck by the value of a human life. Like this little child was fashioned in the image of God. This is the Imago Dei. He bears the image of God. I was so struck by that. The power of the human life, the beauty of a human life. Now, this 17-mile stretch between Jerusalem and Jericho was significant because the temple was in Jerusalem and the priests all lived in Jericho. So it was no surprise that when Jesus said in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Then a second character is introduced. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, in the Jewish community, there were three kinds of categories for people that would use this road. There were priests who did the highest temple duties. There were the Levites who were like the temple assistants. They assisted the the, the major tasks in the temple. And then there were Jewish laymen. They were just kind of like your average Joe or average Joanne Jew, who they, they would perform the menial tasks around the temple. So it would be things like cleaning and all of that. They, they were the, the three categories. So uh, they would all do a two-week rotation. They would work for two weeks in Jerusalem, and then they would head back to Jericho for another two weeks, and then they'd keep rotating and flipping like that. So everyone knew where this story was going. Jesus starts telling the story, and uh, you know it's like a you know, a rabbi and a priest and an Irish guy going to a bar, you know, like they could see like, like how, like where this story was going, they, they knew, right? So they see like there's a priest first, there's a Levite second, and then we know where this is going, the hero of the story, the regular Joe Jew is going to come along and the lesson is you don't need to be a priest You don't need to be a Levite. You don't need to be a church leader. You do not need to have any sort of official title to help people. Nice story, Jesus. We see where this is going. So the priest and the Levite, they don't stop. Is anyone surprised that they didn't stop? No. Now, when we read this in our present day context, when our 21st century Western eyes read this, we're like all shocked. Like the priest... And the Levite, they didn't stop. I can't believe they didn't stop. You know, the lesson here, obviously, is that these men of God who, you know, were known as being the ones that would do the work of God, and they all of a sudden, like, like they missed a guy who was on the side of the road. They're too busy, and they need to stop and look around a little more. That's what we think the lesson is. But the thing is, the audience, the crowd of people that are hearing this were not in the least bit surprised that they didn't stop because they all knew, knew in Leviticus 22 If a priest or a Levite touched a dead body, they would be considered ceremonially unclean. And it would take a full week of rituals to be cleansed again so that they could return to their priestly duties. It's also embarrassing to be ceremonially unclean. So the priests and the Levites, they don't want to mess with that. And even the rest of the people that attend the the, the temple don't want them to mess with that. They don't want them to be ceremonially unclean. No one was surprised. This was not the big twist in the story. The priest and the Levite, they pass on by on the other way. Everyone's like, yeah, of course they do. Now, the crowd knew how this story was going to end. The priest goes by, the Levite goes by, the next person in the progression was a Jewish layman. But now comes the huge shock. Here's the twist in the story. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. A Samaritan. 
What? Jews did not like Samaritans. It would be like a Canadian came on by. Like, I, I, I'm just kidding. Like, what do I know? I'm an immigrant. I don't know, I don't know about your, your culture. But a Samaritan, right? This is a really strange story. Like, this got really weird all of a sudden. What if I told you a story? So, uh, so I ran out of gas on North Territorial Road, and uh, it was seven degrees below zero, which incidentally could have been any day this winter. So I'm on the side of the road, I'm really cold, and I look up, and who is driving by but Brad Powell. And I look over, and I'm like, Brad, hey, I'm the guy that fills in when, you, you know, when you're on vacation. And he looks over, and we get eye contact really quick, and then he looks back, and then he keeps on driving. I'm like, like Brad, 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 Brad. So I wait a little bit longer, kind of getting cold, and then uh, one of the group leaders at Northridge is going on by, and I'm like, I know you. I've, I've met you at Northridge a few times. And I'm like, hey, hey, hey. And they go on by, and I'm like, is this an Australian thing? Or like, what is, what is going on, right? And then here's, my, here's where my story turns, right? Then a Taliban terrorist suicide bomber <laughs> with a bomb strapped to his chest shows up and says, hey, how can I help? I happen to have a gas can. Let me fill it up for you. He fills me all up. He just says, let me just quickly wash your car. I'll make sure that, all right, you're all okay. Here's some money for another gas tank to fill it all up and then be on your way. Like, that's my story. People be like, what is wrong with that guy? Something got lost in translation. I mean, this would be a really bizarre story, right? There were centuries of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. This dated back to the time of the Assyrian Empire. This is the origin of uh, the Samaritan people. Now, the Assyrians uh, were, were brutal people that just terrorized the Assyrian Empire. And uh, they wanted to terrorize the Jews, but instead of wiping them out, they decided that they wanted to dilute their ethnic pride. So what they did is they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and they forced Jews to marry these Assyrian barbarians. And when they married, they produced this mixed race of half Jew and half Assyrian. Now, the way that a Jew would view this is they would say, you should have allowed yourself to be killed then allow Jewish blood to be mixed with Assyrian blood. This mixed race of people became known as the Samaritans and they were absolutely despised by the Jews. Everything about their existence represented people selling out their birthright and they hated them. The Samaritans were also called the people of Shechem. 200 years before Christ, one Jewish writer wrote this, There are two nations that my soul detests. The third one is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir and the Philistines and the stupid people living at Shechem. I mean, the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, they wouldn't even use their name. They called them stupid people living at Shechem. Such an endearing term. Verse 34, back to the text. This is what the Samaritan did. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil uh, on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, what is really interesting about this parable is that Jesus is underscoring the amount of personal cost, the amount of personal sacrifice and expense that this Samaritan, who's potentially an enemy of the guy that is laying there, that he actually went to. And I was was looking over this and I I sort of chronicled like five main areas that that where this actually caused him to sacrifice, it cost him something. The first is that he risked his life. This guy was half dead, which means that 
when he was attending to him, he could have been jumped himself or the robbers wouldn't be very far away. Or what was a common practice in this time is that they would set someone up to pretend that they were hurt and anyone stopping to help them would then in turn be jumped by a whole other gang. So, so the Samaritan in this story would have known that he could be jumped. He was risking his life. Second thing is he risked his reputation. He didn't know the ethnicity of the man. What if he turned out to be a Jew? And he's like riding in on his donkey and then someone's like, you know that you've got a Jewish bloke there, mate. Did you know that? And then he's just completely embarrassed and he would have been despised for his actions. The third thing is it took his time. I mean, the Samaritan had things to do as well, but he diverted his time and his energy to to show mercy and to help. The fourth thing is it took his attention. The Samaritan actually promised to return. So the Samaritan drops him off. He goes and works on other, you know, scheduled activities that he was doing, but in the back of his mind, he's not free of this because he says, I'm going to come back and make sure that you're taken care of. So he had an ongoing commitment to him. And then the fifth thing is that it took his money. Two silver coins were, were two days' wages, two full days' wages, enough to provide care for probably two weeks for this guy. And then he said, I'll come back and I'll pay any other amount that is owed. This act of mercy by the Samaritan came at significant cost. Now, I was reading the work of Jonathan Edwards uh, not long ago, uh, specifically uh, uh, the writing of Christian Charity. And, uh, and I want to read you a quick quote that he has. I think this is a really important point. He says this, when people say, I can't afford to give, what they're really saying is, I can't afford to give without burdening myself. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens. How do you bear someone else's burdens without burdening yourself? You have to burden yourself to bear another burden. Look at the needs of the world. Look at the needs of the church. You need to give until some of the burden other people are experiencing is falling on you. Then there'll be peace and justice in the world. Jonathan Edwards had this idea that people like to give out of their excess, but when people give without it costing anything, they're actually not bearing another burden. Then they're not taking on any of the burden and sharing it. Now, this kind of mercy that Jesus is talking about in the story of the Good Samaritan is he's talking that it must cost us something. This kind of mercy will inconvenience our lives. It costs us money and attention and time. It may even hurt our lifestyle. The merciful act of the Samaritan cost his reputation, he risked his life, took his time and his attention and his money. And the little known fact about this parable is Jesus is actually talking about here what it costs to love mercy. Not to reluctantly administer mercy out of your excess, but to love mercy, to love uh, living out your affection and your kindness for other people. Love in action. To bear a burden, you must share a burden. And it alters your lifestyle. The truth is that life is so much simpler just caring about yourself or just caring about your own family. Sometimes that takes so much of your own energy, it's difficult to be looking beyond that. Life is so much easier doing that. But you know what? When you see mercy on display, when you see the beauty of mercy, you know, it's, it's another one of those moments where things just come into focus, and you begin to see things as they really are. There is something that is deep inside of you that says, yes, this really matters. Now, I want you to think about that as I show you a quick video. I want you to think about the the sense of resonance that is in your heart when you see someone showing mercy and you just have this sense of, yes, this is right. Take a look at this. I was born with not strong legs and I couldn't walk or I couldn't crawl or anything so I got a wheelchair when I was two years old and I've been driving it ever since. 
just because she's different doesn't mean she doesn't like, you know, fit in. Sometimes people will just stare at her. It's like normal person, you're a human being. So my whole life would probably be different if she didn't have a disease. I wouldn't have some like a good brother to help me with the stuff I need to be helped with and it's just easier for me to go through life with a big brother like Trenton. A 5k run and uh, when you go there you pay and then you they're raising money for a cure so they can walk so a lot lots of people run um, I always do it every year to support her. It feels good that I have a brother that would run and do stuff for me and so that it just really feels good. She's like, she's one of the center priorities of my life. Like I would take a bullet for her and uh, um, I mean, honestly, do we all just need to go home now after that? I, I mean, what a sob fest. Why is that boy not just playing with Xbox and... And he said something that was so profound. Did you catch that? He said, my life would be nothing without her. This little Christian boy, his deepest sense of meaning is coming from showing mercy to his sister. Do you think that comes at a cost? Of course it does. While other kids are off like running around and doing other things, like he is taking care of his sister and there is something about it that when you see this, you think, yes, that is it. It's like a moment of clarity. All the things that kind of get us distracted and we think that are important, in the light of seeing the beauty of showing mercy, you just go, yes, that is it. When someone shows mercy and they experience personal cost, when they actually share the burden, something deep inside of you says, that is true, this is right, this is how life is meant to be. So how would we ever convince people to actually live like this? How would we actually convince people to inconvenience their lives so that they would show love and mercy to other people? How, how would we do that? Well, I think the key to accessing the power to live this out is in verse 36. Now, keep in mind that Jesus was responding to the initial question, who is my neighbor? Watch what Jesus does. He flips this thing in verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Did you see what he did? He flipped the question. The expert in the law, he couldn't even utter the word Samaritan. He replies, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The expert in the law is saying, who do I have to give to? Jesus flips it and says, who would you receive from? Who is my neighbor? Who do you want to be a neighbor to you? When you're in need, when it's, when it's you lying on the side of the road, beaten, stripped, and left half dead? What if it was your son? What if it was your daughter or your spouse or someone that you deeply love? What if they were in need? Would you receive mercy in your time of need even from your enemy? I need to tell you that being a pastor is an unusual job. 
when people make an appointment with me, it's typically not because financially things are going great in their life, that their job's doing really well and everyone's healthy, and I just need to make an appointment with my pastor to tell him how good my life is. That has actually never happened. People come to pastors when they're in crisis. And every week, I meet with people in my church and even people in our community who are having a difficult time with life. And I say this to my wife, Brandy, all the time. I probably say it every single week. I am just astonished at the level of strain and the level of pain in people's lives. I mean, I'm just astonished. Like, like regular, normal people, I'm amazed. People going through you know, financial strain or medical or health issues that are crippling them or, or some sort of relational complexity that's got so many moving pieces that they can't even think of how they're gonna untangle it all. And people bring this stuff and we have a discussion about it and I, I end up just having this overwhelming sense that life is hard. Life is hard. It reminds me of that quote by Ian McLaren. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Isn't that true? I mean, even people that you think have got it all together, they're just better at hiding their challenges than you are. And, and when you look at someone else and you think, oh man, their life would be great, you know, they don't have financial challenges and they're healthy and they're good looking. And the, when you look at someone else and, and, and you say, you know, I think that their life would be so much better, what you are doing is you are comparing what you do know about your life with what you don't know about theirs. One of the things that I've been astonished, I've been astonished by over the years is the number of people who, who project a level of, of success in their lives and when you get close enough, you find that they are plagued with insecurities and with fear and with challenges. When you look at someone else, you compare what you know about yourself with what you don't know about them and everyone is fighting their issues. Be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And Jesus takes this story and he, in just this one move, he masterfully moves the discussion to being about the heart. He's not saying you need to give to the needy. He's saying you were needy and someone else gave to you. And when no one was expecting it, this simple story is ruptured by the gospel and it comes crashing in. The reality is we are all vulnerable, we are all helpless in our state of sin and through an extravagant act of mercy and love and grace and kindness and at great cost, Jesus saved us from certain death. And the secret to love mercy is to remember that we have received mercy. We have received extravagant mercy. And we now can live out of a profound sense of gratitude. We get to rescue others because we have been rescued ourselves. And we've all been dispatched into the community to love mercy, to put mercy on display. And in our workplaces and in our schools and in our neighborhoods, God has strategically placed us all to be the ones that put mercy on display. In the neighborhood where I live, I haven't even lived there very long, and a lot of you know that because I've just moved to the area. But in the neighborhood where I live, a couple of months ago, one morning I heard sirens out in the community, and I walked outside and I saw uh, an ambulance and fire trucks all pulling up to a house that was two doors down from ours. So I'm wandering out there and I'm, I'm chatting with other, other neighbors are like coming out going, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know, like what's going on, you know? And eventually we find one bloke and he knows what's happening. And we said, what, you know, what's up? He says, he says I, don't, I don't really know how to say this, but uh, there's a girl in her 20s who last night took her own life and the way that she chose to do it is she went over to the neighbor's house and she hung herself off the back 
deck where everyone could see her. And if that wasn't bad enough, he says, my 12-year-old son got up to have breakfast this morning and as he opened the curtains to the kitchen, he looked outside and he saw her hanging there. It's two doors down from my house. And he says, we don't know what to say to our son. He's sobbing right now. And he keeps saying he's sorry. He's sorry he opened the curtains. Sorry what I did to the family. He's sorry. My wife says, you need to get him to connect with uh, a crisis counselor who works, with, who works particularly with children so that he can just kind of debrief this. She said, it's, it's actually what I used to do. I used to work with, with trauma victims and um, you know, uh, counsel people in the middle or post-crisis and particularly I'd, I'd deal with the children. So he looks at my wife and goes, will you come see him? And she says, sure. So Brandy goes over to this family, and uh, these are not people of faith. And she sits down, and the parents are just like over in the corner, and Brandy sits down with this, with this 12-year-old boy. And sometimes I just marvel at the giftedness of my wife. I marvel at the way that God has uniquely gifted her. Because honestly, I think I'd sit down with that boy, and I wouldn't know where to begin and Brandy like led him through a collection of exercises. She uncovered a couple of things that he was feeling. She helped him like map out a, a number of different things. And at the end of it, he really started to have a grip on what his feelings were and how it was going and, and, and all of that. The way that she processed it with him was just a thing of beauty to watch. And at the end, the parents are just looking at my wife and just going, Thank you, thank you, thank you. So she comes back home, and the next day, I get an email, and Brandy gets an email from the president of the Neighborhood Association. And they're saying, hey, I know we haven't met yet because you just moved in, but everyone in the community has no idea what we should do to handle this. People are really upset. Like, there's, there's, there's major anxiety that's going on in our community can you meet with us and help us make sense of what we should do? So Brandy and I say, fine, you know. So we go over to this guy's house we've never met before. We sit down, and the board of the leadership of the, of the neighborhood are all there. And we just start discussing it. And we say, you know, you could do this, and you could do this, and maybe you could call a meeting, and you could kind of lead people through it. And we get into like 45 minutes into the conversation, and then they look at us almost unanimously, and they basically go, yeah, we think we need to do this and you need to lead it. And I'm thinking, I just moved into this community, you know, like, I don't want to lead this. And I just sense the Holy Spirit saying, you need to lead this. A couple of days later, the entire neighborhood gets together, families and, and everyone, and I'm just thinking, how did this happen and then the president of the association looks over at me and he nods and I have to get up and look out over a, a sea of people and, and welcome everyone and, and, and walk them through what had happened. I had to pastor our community through the crisis that our, that our neighborhood had experienced. And unless you think that that's something, you know, that I found really easy to do. Like, I didn't know what to say. Like, I don't know how to lead these heathens through this, you know? <laughs> so I lead them in a time of prayer and, and silence. And then I help them understand the different groups of people that have been affected by this and ask them to pray for these different groups of people. And then my wife comes up and joins me and we have a Q&A time where people are asking about what they need to say to their kids. How do they lead them through it? What if another kid says something to my kid and they start talking and, and Brandy just, I mean, masterfully weaves her way through and gives people direction. And then she says, hey, you know where we live, right? We're on your street. Come and see us anytime. We're in this together. 
And I was just thinking to myself, like, I mean, just in, just like I've, like I've ever seen God do anything in my life, he had placed us in this community. I mean, we just got there, and all of a sudden, crisis hits, and the community looks to the Christians to lead them through and, and, and help them navigate through this in a, in a time of, of needing mercy. And I think about the beauty of mercy being on display. And I, and I was saying to Brandy, like, what a way for our entire neighborhood to know that a pastor and a crisis counselor are living in their community than for me to stand up in front of everyone and to pastor them through a crisis like this. It's an absolute privilege that only God could have done. I was just thinking, you know, maybe in heaven, they have like this enormous map with different zip codes and it's all color-coded, right? And your name and my name are like designated in these particular different areas. And like a couple of angels are over there going, hey, in sector five, we're a little low on some people, they just moved out of the neighborhood, we need some more believers in there so that they can show mercy to this community. We need to plant some people in there. Like wherever you are, wherever you live, wherever you work, if you go to school, whatever school you go to, you are strategically placed there in like heaven's redemptive strategy that's playing out. We get to put mercy on display. Let me just close with this. I love going and seeing movies. And I love getting there early enough to be able to watch a bunch of previews. You know, the trailers? I, I love, now, I don't know whether they're getting longer or they're jamming more in there, but it seems like the movies start 45 minutes after now than they say, because you're just watching so many previews and there's subliminal messages about buying Coke and stuff, right? So, but I, I really enjoy watching, watching trailers, watching previews, and, and one thing I have noticed in every culture that I've been in, in every language that I've seen, every human being responds exactly the same way at the end of a trailer. Everyone. You have no choice over your behavior. At the end of a trailer, you look to the person that you're with, and you either go, no, or you go, yes. You're either saying, what a waste of time, or you're saying, that looks amazing. Do you know what we are? We are the trailer for the kingdom of God. We are the preview community. And, and, and the world is looking on, and they're looking at us, and then they're looking at each other, and they're either gonna say, what a waste of time, or they're going to say, that looks amazing. And we get to put the mercy of God on display. We have received mercy, so we can show mercy. We can love mercy. And that means it's gonna cost us something. But when we do, there is something that is so deep inside of you and deep inside of me where you go, this really matters, this is it. This is so much more important than anything else. Interesting thing is that other people see that as well. We put the kingdom of God on display. And what a privilege that you have been dispatched into your neighborhood and your community and I've been into mine and we are just waiting for God to lead us to show how we love mercy to our community. Now maybe you're sitting here today and, and you would say, I have not opened my heart up to the mercy of Jesus and I need to do that. I would encourage you Maybe today would be the time that you would say, I open my heart up to God's mercy and I wanna extend mercy to, to other people. And if you wanna do that, then we'll pray today and you can open your heart up to the, to the mercy of Jesus. Let's stand together. Let's pray. First of all, God, I wanna ask that... To those who have not 
opened up their heart to your mercy, those who would, uh, would say that they're not followers of Jesus, but they're sensing that you are leading them and, and calling them. I pray that in this moment, that they would open up their lives, they would open up their hearts to your outrageous mercy, the mercy that cost you a lot. It cost Jesus dying and being buried and rising again from the dead. And we, we, we reflect on that significant act of mercy. And I pray that there would be people that would be making decisions even in the stillness of this moment and inviting you into their lives and giving, your, giving their lives over to you. I pray that they'd do that. God, thank you that we get the clarity, the high definition clarity of the word of God and that you've shown us what you require to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you. And I pray that you would find us doing that, God, that you would send us out and that we would, even at great expense or at great cost, you would find us sharing burdens with other people putting mercy on display. Find us, God, as a people who love mercy, that we would be a trailer for the kingdom of God and that people would wanna be a part of it. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. On the way in, you would have received a, a program that's like this. If you made a decision to open up your heart to the mercy of Jesus, then I would just encourage you to fill out this card and then at the bottom, just check this box. Today, I prayed to receive Jesus in my life for the very first time. And then you can uh, hand that in on the way out to one of the ushers or put it in one of the boxes out there. At any of the campuses on online, you can click on uh, the box that will show you the next steps and people from Northridge will follow up with you. Let me just uh, pray a blessing over you as we go. And now, God, I pray that you would send us out, that you would dispatch us into neighborhoods and into communities and into schools and that we would be the very people of God loving mercy and showing the beauty of that to a world who so desperately needs to see that. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.